You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that if you took all of the DNA in your body and stretched it out as much as you could, it would reach from here to Pluto and back 17 times. Well, at least that's what it said in the science magazine, but they didn't say where in the orbit of Pluto that would be since it's elliptical. I'm a little skeptical on that one, but we'll say that that passes muster. So anyway, that's your cool fact of the day. And what that means is you've got an awful lot of DNA in there, and that's kind of cool. Most of it is, of course, replicating the same basic things over and over and over since most cells in your body have all of that DNA in it. So it's maybe less impressive than we thought. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's guest is a fascinating guy, a guy that I met a couple years ago through Jim Quick. And you might remember Jim Quick. He's been a guest on Bulletproof Radio. He's a good friend and one of the top memory coaches for like Fortune 500 executives and celebrities and just a great-hearted human being. So I'm speaking at Jim's conference and he's like, Dave, you got to meet this guy. He's one of the smartest people out there and runs this company. There's a TV show based on him. And so we sat down and had a really interesting conversation about emotional intelligence. And the TV show I'm talking about is called Scorpion. And the smart guy sitting here in front of me is Walter O'Brien. Walter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Now, when we first sat down, uh, you sort of told me your story, like you basically had no emotional intelligence or very little of this and uh, a very smart guy, obviously. But I wanted to talk with you about how you built a business around this idea of having emotionally intelligent people and like basically people who are on the, the spectrum of Asperger's and pairing them together. Like what, what made you get to this, this idea? Cause it's not something most companies do. Well, I guess like most uh, businesses, it was a happy accident. I, um, I was a kid in Ireland who didn't fit in and teachers complained. I asked too many questions. Parents were farmers, and I didn't want to take over the farm, so I was just didn't fit in every which way at home or at school. And um, I then discovered computers, loved them, was self-taught, hacked into NASA at 13 and stole the shuttle blueprints, got busted by the NSA via Interpol, turned them into a client, and then had to start a business at that point. So when you were 13, you got a government client? Right, because it was either that or go to jail. Okay. <laughs> so this was, you know, the era of war games, the movie, sort of the Correct. 80s kind of time. They were just glad I wasn't the Russians. But basically, if they signed an extradition waiver, then I could work with them. The trouble is, if I was 13, I was too young to be employed. But if I open a, an entity, a company, and I'm the CEO of it, they can employ the company. Okay. And that's then I can stop other people hacking in the way I did. So you were a, a super uh, geek. And for people who weren't alive or at least teenagers in the 80s, it wasn't 
that difficult to break into a lot of these systems because frankly, if you had a modem and you dialed it, it would answer. So we had this thing called war dialing. We just dial around to find open modems and I may or may not have logged into a few sites I shouldn't have doing the same sort of thing. Right, it was a little more complicated than that, yeah. but you're right, it wouldn't be near as complex as it is today. Plus, if you remember back then, it was CompuServe, it was dial-up modem over long-distance phone calls and super slow. So it took like four days to download what would be like a JPEG today. So is it is it true that you can actually talk to a modem just by whistling, like you personally, as part of your hacking skills? Uh, maybe I'm just not a good enough whistler. <laughs> I, I haven't done that. I'm kidding. Uh, I, I used to tell people that I could do that, and they would believe me, so I'm, I'm just joking. Your question about EQ, IQ, yeah. though. What happened then was um, they'd sent me for an IQ test. I scored 197. This is when you were a teenager? When I was nine, yeah. Okay, got it. And then I um, went ahead, and as I, the company got busier, we were kind of like Geek Squad. We'd run around fixing computers and printers and bad hard drives and installing DOS and stuff. In, in Ireland? In Ireland, yeah. Okay, so the, the U.S. had some stuff going on over there? or uh, No, it, it was, so my company was in Ireland. Oh, so you were, I like, lived serv- there. You were serving Irish clients. I was okay. serving Irish clients locally, and then when the government over here would need something, I'd disappear for a week and do it, okay. and then be back there at school. And as I got busier, I needed help, so I hired my friends, the ones who didn't bully me. But they were in the Gifted Children's Society, so they were all high IQ prodigies. And I thought, hey, I'll have a company full of geniuses. That should be good. I was wrong, because as soon as I put two of them on the same project, they tried to kill each other while insulting the customer. And that's where I started to understand this concept that often the higher the IQ, the lower the EQ, the emotional intelligence, common sense, social skills. So I went out and tested and found single moms, elementary school teachers, and psychologists who had high EQ scores, hired them to manage the people with high IQ, you did this when you were still a teenager? Yeah. Or you, okay. So I called them I, super nannies. Okay. Because they babysit the geniuses and the customers. So you now had fused together the best thinkers with the best communicators, the left brain with the right brain. It's it's really interesting. So I was also in a, in a gifted students program. And what you're describing is, is the emergence of basically geek culture. And it, it's kind of like that. You have a bunch of smart and frankly, very odd kids. Like I had no social skills today. I think they would describe it as Asperger's syndrome. All of my aunts and uncles, my grandmother all score high on the, the autism or at least on the Asperger scale. And I was like 42 out of 50 on the, the basic test for that. Uh, and I ended up kind of rewiring my biology first, which led a lot of my brain to work and then ended up learning social skills and like, like learning how to do a lot of that stuff. So what you're saying rings true. And, and even in Silicon Valley, the entire time that I was working on you know, early cloud stuff, uh, early e-commerce and all that, there's a definite, uh, what's called a, an engineering geek culture, where you come in, if, if you don't have the engineering chops, like they sort of stress test you, ask you all the hard questions, see if you can explain stuff back. And if you're accepted into the, the smart kids club, it, it's very much like the, the jocks versus the nerds in the old movies like that. So you were dealing with the same thing in Ireland that I was dealing with in, in New Mexico, actually, of all yeah. places. There's a favorite joke of mine in that, which is a, a guy floats down in a hot air balloon in Seattle, mm-hmm. and he yells out to a guy in a bicycle, hey, where am I? And the guy gets off the bicycle and looks at him carefully and looks at the ground and then says, you're about 50 feet up in a hot air balloon. And the guy in the balloon is slightly miffed, and he goes, you must be an engineer. And the guy goes, that's amazing. How did you know? And he said, because your answer is technically correct, but completely useless. Yeah. And then the guy on the ground said, well, you must be in executive management. And he said, how do you know? He said, well, you're floating around in the clouds with no idea where you're going, but now it's my fault. Right. 
And that that is the dichotomy between the engineers and the management. And I, literally any software company where the founder is not still in charge, and they brought in a whole bunch of you know the big four consultancy firms, and you've got all these EQ people dismissing the IQ people, and the IQ people dismissing the EQ people, and it's it's two warring factions. Yep. In, in fact, I would credit a lot of Google's success with the fact that they had two you know, hardcore engineers who stayed in charge. And when Google had like two servers, uh, the company w- where I, I co-founded the consulting group of this company, and we ended up holding Google servers and like providing them space to grow and all that stuff. So it was very common to see those guys before they were famous, you know, walking around carrying a server and things like that. And those were real geeks. And when real geeks stay in charge, they build a different culture. And so the Google culture, you might, there might be some complaints recently <laughs> about that. But overall, I think the fact that they just said, we're, we're going to choose an engineering culture and we're going to leave that in place, that it, it definitely provided different results than having just executive managers. But they've also hired a ton of normal, quote, you know, neurotypical engineers and neurotypical executives to grow that way. Well, you got to know some of our super nannies. Oh, yeah. And, and interact with them. And that's better than working directly with me, who's just about what do you need and how can I solve it? There's no question that uh, you know, some engineers definitely can be rude, but they can be really brilliant. And I think that's part of, of the brilliance. You know, when I did network engineering and architecture, you know, there's a big sign outside my cube like, don't bother me. Like, I'm, I'm focusing, leave me alone and, and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, you, you can soften those skills out. So when you when you did this, though, as a as a teenager, um, what did your parents say? That, you know, like, I'm starting this company. They're farmers. Like, that had to be an interesting story. What, what's the deal there? So my parents, you know, I, I guess I got lucky. I had very nice parents. But my dad is a farmer. All he wants to talk about is the weather and the animals. Anything outside of that scope, no interest whatsoever. So we're on different planets. We don't fight. We get along great and when we do talk. But you know, absolutely no discussion in terms of what I what I was interested in back then. And uh, my mom hates technology. You know, she, sweetest person in the world, loves life and and movies and everything else we can talk about, but absolutely allergic to technology. So it was funny actually. The TV show was the first time when they sat down and watched a few episodes that they they kind of sort of understood what I do for a living. It, it's funny. I'm pretty sure that my mother-in-law still thinks I'm unemployed because I don't have a, a proper job, <laughs> like being an entrepreneur at all. I think maybe when she saw one of the books at the New York Times list, I think that it like, okay, he's an author, but I, I don't think that the uh, that necessarily multi-generationally what we do necessarily computes. But I mean, what did your parents say when you took off you know, for the U.S. for a week at a time? Did they kind of freak out? That's not normal farming behavior. Yeah, I mean, there was a bit of a funny story on that. I mean, they, they learned early on by the time I was probably 13, 14, that there was no point in telling me what to do. I was telling them it was past their bedtime, and I'd stay up till 4 a.m. doing my programming and work because I'd have homework, school the next morning, and customers to do during lunchtime because um, I didn't quit my education. But I remember when I was leaving for the U.S. for for longer periods of time, my mom was crying because she was going to miss me leaving at the airport. And then my dad said, why is she crying? And and she, my mom said, well, you know, I hope he'll be okay in the U.S. And my dad, who doesn't say much, just said, I'd be more worried about the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. So, so you you started your, your consultancy company. Uh, and then, uh, of what, about 10 or so years ago, um, you you started transforming it and then ended up getting a bunch more clients. How, how did you take that model of, you know, hire uh, people who are on the spectrum somewhere 
and then add in the super nanny model. How did you scale that? Like what kind of clients were you serving? And then I have some real specific questions about like how did the interactions work, but, but just sure. kind of tell me the story. Yeah. So I was biased. I only love computers. I love technology since I was nine and that's all I wanted to do. And my degrees then followed in computer science and artificial intelligence. So we solved technical problems. And then we got pretty broad in that as technology expanded. People said, can you do a website? And we're like, sure. Can you do an ERP system? Sure. Can you do a database? Sure. They're it's all just data to me. And because I grew up with that industry, I knew all a little, enough about all those areas where I could take care of something for a client and couldn't really be fooled in terms of other, other vendors who were protecting them from. So I worked with Oracle, IBM, Microsoft, et cetera. And then I realized that I'm always kind of taking a step back and looking at myself and my business going, what can I do better? What can I do differently? And it was about 10 years ago, you're exactly right, where I was, you know, meditating, proverbially sitting on the rock and looking at it and going, I've got all this IQ in the company and I've got these wonderful people that are bonding with the customers in the EQ side. And we've worked out a methodology for solving problems that's very engineery in how we break them down. We kind of assume the customer's always wrong. So when they come to us, we try and push back and go, where did your assumptions come from? And why are you really doing this? And what's the root cause? And okay. is it worth it? Right. Rather than a normal outsourced company, it just says, yes, sir, they'll do whatever you tell them, even if you're on the wrong path. So we'll push back on the customer and go, are you sure about this? And some the smarter customers get that and they love it. But then we, um, I said, why waste all this brain power on only solving technical problems? What if we just said we'd solve any problem? And maybe we'll do it in a technical way, but who cares as long as we solve the problem? So we opened up a website called conciergeup.com. And we literally said, if you want to search something, type it in Google. If you want it to happen, type it in here. And slowly but surely, people came along and typed in things like, my mom has throat cancer. Can you find all non-FDA approved operations outside the US that don't involve removing her jaw? My daughter's at- Did, did, Did that one work? Yeah. Right. Does the person like around today? Yes. Oh, yeah. that's beautiful. All right. The, uh, my daughter has anorexia. Can you find all food that's odorless and tasteless, but high in calories and fat? So, so we can get her back to ballerina weight so she can go into therapy. Okay. Um, I'm moving my Porsche collection to Hawaii and I'm worried that the salt air will cause corrosion and rust. Is there a spray or a chemical that'll protect the underside of the cars? And what boat do I use to ship them over there? So I don't, I make sure to get there. So basically do basic research, find experts and put together a plan just so you don't have to think about it. And that, that can be valuable. How do you get books on the New York Times bestseller list? How do you research uh, relaunching a movie? Um, what, how do, you know, whatever people want to do and what, we, what it narrowed down to is every person we met with, at least the ones smart enough to hire us, has their own core competency and they're better than us in that area. But then if they've spent their 10,000 hours being really good at that one thing, we'll take biohacking as an example, they end up sucking in a lot of other areas. There's things they suck at because they're good at that one thing. Yeah, you make sacrifices, okay. So we basically are appealing to them to say, give us all the stuff you suck at and let us use our expert network to handle that. And you do your magic. You do what you're brilliant at. And that way you reach your full potential. So you you started doing that and then somehow it became a TV show. <laughs> that is the oddest thing I've yeah, heard obviously. of. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. Right, so, so like non sequitur there. Okay, how does that transition into being on TV? Sure. So what happened there was 
we started getting so many requests in that I started running out of geniuses to answer them. Um, we had uh, about 3,000 we could access in the consortium. And they're 150 IQ or higher, which is about 1 in 10,000 people. Did you actually give them an IQ test to get in? Yes, or how yes. do you know? Okay, cool. To, yeah. Which IQ test do you use for that? Uh, we use a Stanford Binet. And then okay. we have our own like techie tests and other tests. And then okay. we have our own EQ test as well. So they, they come with their own IQ test and we, we, we revalidate. Okay, cool. So then, um, and very quickly, if they're not, you find out in like a week. So we like not hire someone who's 147, but has domain <laughs> no. expertise? No, if they have domain expertise and they're the best in the world at something that uh, no one else knows, we do keep them on our Rolodex to bring them in as an expert, but they're not part of the consortium. They're managed differently. Okay. Um, so we have, for example, experts in graphene for water desalinization. Not many people spend their life doing that. So we can't be picky. We'll take whoever knows that the best. I mean, is, um, is IQ that good of a predictor of job performance? I mean, Google found it wasn't. Uh, Microsoft found it wasn't. I mean, right. well, if you hire a total jerk who, who has a high IQ, usually they blow yeah. things up. No, there's a famous phrase. is like, it's great to hire po- smart people, but it should be possible to like them. Right. So the answer is no. High IQ would be horrible for job uh, performance in any other environment. What I did is I fixed the environment. Because if you if you had high IQ and you go to work at a normal Bank of America, for example, you'd be fired in a week for not being a team player and insulting everyone around you as idiots. But if you have if you are m- mentored by a super nanny, if you're stacking the deck where everyone you report to is smarter than you, not dumber than you, if your environment fairly rewards effort and monitors how many er- what your error rate and mistakes are, and all the motivations and bonuses are set up correctly and you're rewarded for being a pessimist, not an optimist. So if you're kissing my ass all day, that mm-hmm. doesn't do me any good. But if you point out a landmine I'm about to step on, I'll you, reward you for you that. You get bonus points for that. So it's the reverse of everything we know as corporate culture. So, but let me answer the movie, the yeah, TV show. Well, I have one question before we go to the TV show. Do your super nannies just want to jump off bridges? I mean, because it's really stressful to work with people who act that way. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that. <laughs> That is the hardest job in the company. The hardest job is yeah. not being the genius, it's being the super nanny. Because they, they want to they want to throttle them, they want to choke them, and they can't. The geniuses have an excuse when they screw up because they're low EQ. The super nanny is supposed to super nanny, so they have to take it on the chin, whether the genius is playing on their insecurities, trying to make them cry, trying to sabotage them, whatever it is, they have to be the ultimate double double agent. So how do you hire how do you hire one of those when you don't have an IQ test? Well, there's an EQ test. Okay, so use the EQ to, test. to get the super nanny. And, and what score but do you have to get on that? In order? 75 or higher out of 100. Okay. But it's not just that, because there's lots of people who are right-brained, but then would completely fall apart under pressure. Okay. So we often get them PMP certified, which is project management professionals. Yep. Then uh, we have to make sure that they're very, very tough mentally, okay. very strong. You don't want one that's breaking down in tears every time things get rough. Yeah, that won't work. So they have to be sensitive and right-brained enough to really engage and understand the customer's concerns and fears and uh, corral the the, the um, geniuses. One of them described it as herding cats while the cats are on fire. Right. And at the same time, they I've had situations where, where they come to me and they're like, we found out this guy is particularly trying to sabotage us, hacking our family, endangering our lives in a particular your way. Your own people have done that. Your own, own, own people, the gen- a genius. I'm assuming role. you've fired the geniuses for that. No, absolutely not. Oh, so man, you what, should. What, well, no. Here's what we have to do because that person could be critical on a project that saves lives. 
like our military projects. Mm -hmm. So I'll have to turn to the super nanny going, okay, you need to be this person's best friend and have lunch with them for the next six months and act like none of this is happening and you don't know it. That's the double agent part. So, At the end of the six months, we'll take care of it and they won't be here anymore. Oh, just, but, just to finish through a project. But you need okay. to be able to control yourself enough to be able to switch on, switch off and handle that. So, so your super nannies get hazard pay during this or how, how does that work? <laughs> Well, they get rewarded at the end of the year, depending on on the. Um, we have all kinds of stats on how the projects went and how much flow through there is. How uh, many uh, evil geniuses can a super nanny manage? Twelve. 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 Okay, so super nanny is definitely the hardest job in the company. Yes. Okay. Incredible. Absolutely, except for me, who has to super nanny all the super nannies and genius all the geniuses. Well, no, that, that's hard too. That's got to be tough. I mean, you showed me your Myers Briggs when we first met, and, right. and you're, you're pretty much three quarters robot, as far as I could tell. Hundred like, percent on the Myers Briggs. Yeah. So, what's your Myers Briggs score? It's ENTJ, mm -hmm. but I am off the scale left brain in every category. Nothing on the right. No feelings. None of the uh, the, the the judging versus perceiving. No perceiving. All judging. I, I'm just left brained all the way. So I'm simulating EQ using the IQ abundance in real okay. time. And I thought maybe after doing that for a few years, it would grow on me. But according to the therapists who measured it, they said, nope, you're not emotionally invested at all. You're still playing it like an actor. So are you, I mean, do you have Asperger's, ADD? Like, like kind of what's the diagnosis there? Um, when I was growing up doing all this, they didn't have those sure. phrases or those tests. And I right. haven't had time to go back for them. I'm sure that I'm, I'm definitely on the spectrum. But where exactly now and whether if I took a test now, would I be still faking my EQ in the test so I appear normal? Or should I turn it off and be myself? In which case, I'd probably be on the Asperger spectrum. It, it, the reason I'm asking is that, uh, I, I mean, I didn't know anyone's name in my classes growing up. I might know like two people's names. And and like, I, I really, I wouldn't make eye contact. I had like, like self-stimming. You like press your fingers and like click your teeth and ODD and OCD. And the people, when I say this, people like, really? But I'm like, no, I, I also weigh 300 pounds. Like, like I, I'm a very different person than I was. And when I realized that for what I wanted to do in Silicon Valley, I needed to develop those skills. I had a, a few really good mentors who were like, yeah, like, let me show you how things work. Because I was like pure engineering, like, you know, just think about stuff and it's easy. And I didn't get the results I wanted. So I, I spent almost two years, I go to, it's called the Stanford Barn. It's still there. And they had this business networking group. Like this is when the first browsers were invented and all. And I would like stand there like a like a tree, like holding a glass of some kind of alcohol and like watch business networking, like like a like a scientist, anthropologist, right? <laughs> go, all right. And then I would like try and do it and completely like, you know, you kind of walk someone, hey, what do you do? And I was, I, I'm, I'm sure if I saw someone, I'm like, oh God, I want to talk Did to you remember guy. to grab their elbow as you shake their hand, just like yeah. Clinton does? <laughs> oh, geez. No, I mean, it's, yeah. exa it's exactly that. And I just got less awkward over the years. Yeah, so I, I did too. But eventually at a certain point after I did some of the personal development stuff, like I actually have a, a real EQ, but like I realized there was there was signal in all the neurological noise that I had just been tuning out and I learned how to tune to the signal. And, and if you were to measure me today, I actually have a reasonable EQ. I, I haven't taken your test or anything, um, but I, I found it was always in there. I just didn't know how to, how to find it or see it. But you've, you've had none of that in your own life. I've had none of that. Now, if it's the other way of looking at it is if it is in there, I think what happens is it's completely ignored in terms of any waiting on it in mm -hmm. my decision-making mechanisms. Okay. Everything I decide on is math. Okay. Pros and cons. Life's a casino. I'm playing the odds on every single thing. And emotion doesn't weigh into it. So you never get pissed off? Um, I can get absolutely frustrated. That sounds like an emotion. 
right? Yeah, no, absolutely. But there, well, there's also chemical stimulation. I mean, for example, if you drive a Lamborghini or Ferrari, that makes no sense logically. I should be driving around the Prius. Right, if you do math, right. But the stimulation from it, uh, to me, is like meditation. Okay. If you're doing nearly 200 miles an hour, it's hard to think about work. Oh, yeah, that's a flow state. I, I used to have yeah. a big problem with speeding for that same reason. But yeah, I, there you go. Well, if you go home, and delete your tickets. So, um, <laughs> perfect. The, but yeah, you're like, yeah, I was the fat kid, I was the poor kid, and I was the weird kid. So, I had, I had the trifecta okay. and the teacher's pet. So, I could be bullied from all angles. And that helps shut down your right brain. Oh, it sure does. Um, what about joy? So, so like, like, I'm all numbers. So, you, you get some joy out of driving fast. But so you, you get pissed off, right? And you can, you, you, I mean, do you enjoy happiness, stuff like that? Or are these things that you seek or these things that you, that you do? I have a whole definition around that. And what is it? And that, and that whole philosophy. Did you want me to answer a TV show? We'll or, get there. We'll, we'll get, get there. back to it. Okay. So, all right, let's uh, talk about that for a moment. So I, as always, as a scientist, I looked into it. It was like, okay, if you're not worried about paying the rent anymore, what's life about? What's your purpose? Why are we right. here? And I looked at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and most people spend their entire life scrambling to pay the rent and survive. But if you get to the top of the triangle, it's self-actualization. Right. And then one definition of that is how do you use the gifts and skills you have to do the most good for society before you die? Right. So I thought about that for a little bit. And then I also looked at Napoleon Hill said, happiness is living a purpose-filled life. Right. So if I figured out my purpose through self-actualization, and I was on my journey to it, um, that would should make me happy because I know where I'm going. So then I thought about that. And I thought, well, if I'm going somewhere, it means I'm the vehicle to get there. So I can be on a bicycle or I can be a BMW. One of those is going to get there faster and more reliably. So then I started breaking down, what, how do I improve my vehicle, biohacking myself in, a little, in some ways, so I can get to my self-actualization. And I call it balancing my cues. So let me take you okay. through this real quick. And because I'm a car nut, everything I believe everything in the world can be explained using car analogies. So it works so well. It, it works really well. Electric cars broke them all. Yes. But anyway, so we'll assume these are gas-powered this cars. This is a gas-powered right? car. So now, picture you're in your gas-powered car and you're going on a journey to your destination. And so your IQ is your horsepower in the engine. Mm -hmm. Doesn't change. You're born with it. Can't really go up or down. Mm, I can show you 15-point differences and stuff that I do. Large amounts of marijuana will make it go down, absolutely. <laughs> uh, now, so that's the IQ. Yep. The next one's the EQ. EQ is your steering, handling, braking, aerodynamics. The control systems, okay. Control systems. Now, that's the problem with most prodigies. They have a high IQ. You get off the starting line. They're way ahead of everybody else. First time there's a corner, they crash and burn. They have no handling, no finesse, right. no, no cornering, no brakes. So you need that EQ to get around the bends in life. In the car with you is your RQ. That's your relationship quotient. Your friends, your family, your, your, your partner. Are they toxic? Are they good for you? Are they supportive? Are they negative? Who do you cut out of your life? Who do you keep in your life? Critical on your, if you're going to enjoy your journey. Who's in the car with you? Next one is picture the wheels. That's your BQ, your body quotient. If the wheels fall off your wagon, it doesn't matter how good your IQ is, you're not going anywhere. Yep. So you've got to look after your health a little bit. Now, that's the one I ignored for years and started taking care of about four months ago. Next is, imagine if this car has a spare tire on the back. I call that your FQ, financial quotient, taxes, legal, accounting, contracts, insurance, spare keys to everything, money for a rainy day, your 401k. 
if you ignore all that stuff because you're all right-brained and, and having a good time as an artist, the first time anything goes wrong, anyone sues you, your, your car crashes, your house burns down, you're stuck on the side of the road going nowhere. If you have all of that put in place, you're up and running the next day with a rental car from the insurance company. The most important one is your GQ. That's your grit, your passion, your drive, your conscientiousness. If you run, and that's your fuel, your gas. Mm -hmm. You run out of that, doesn't matter how good the car is, you're still not getting there. Okay. So you got to balance your cues. And when you wake up in the morning, the hard part is you should work on your lowest cue because your feelings will make you want to work on your highest cue. So me waking up every day working on my IQ is not going to make a whole ton of difference to my business. But if I work on my BQ, maybe I'll live 10 years longer. There's a pretty good return on investment from having uh, hardware in your body that works okay. I, I, I've met, I found that the hard way as right. well. Right? And it's also, you know, my, I'd be hypocritical if my philosophy is to help as many people as possible, and then I let myself die early. <laughs> I, I would agree with that, but man, it happens to a lot of people. Absolutely. So, so what have you done then? Um, this is cool. Only in the last four months. So what, what are you doing? I, I mean, I, I'm assuming you're looking to lose so some weight. So I, I yeah. went to a, um, Dr. Franklin Reed for Vita Life. Mm -hmm. And they did all the blood work on me, but but not like I've ever seen before. Kind of like a fifty, uh, it's like a five six page smog test, right? With all fifty different things they measured. Then they said, frankly, to me, okay, do you want diabetes or not? Because you're you're heading right at that spectrum. Because I ate like an engineer for forty years. Oh yeah, it was a party. I ate Jolt Cola and Red Bull and pizza, I was whatever I say wanted. Jolt, at, if you didn't, at two and four in the morning. So I said, okay, well, I'd prefer not to have that. So what do I need to do? I said, do your worst because I'm an on off switch. I ignore health or let's do it. So protein shakes in the morning, prep meals delivered to the house. I, I removed all sugar with all carbs. Good move. Personal trainer. I hate mornings. And when I wake up, all hell's broken loose at the company. And every night I have some event or so, some charity thing I'm going to. So when do I work out? 5 p.m. in the afternoon. All the fires are out. I'm not getting ready for dinner yet. And the work day is pretty much wrapping up. Got it. Personal trainer comes to the house because I joined a gym called the No Excuses Gym, mm -hmm. and then I found an excuse not to go. Sorry to get there. So now the yeah. personal trainer shows up at my door. I'm not a flaky guy. I'm not going to turn him away. So he turns up. I'm like, oh crap, he's here. And now he's got to work my ass out using stretchy bands and, and resistance bands, which means I don't pull muscles or injure myself. If my arm gets tired, I don't stretch as far. So I did all that. Then I realized I was tired. I had sleep apnea and snoring, oh, so and I didn't know how long I'd had that. I was waking up 30 times an hour every two minutes from, from lack of air. So I may have not been sleeping for years. Now, no apnea, no, no snoring, sleep through the night. And when I'm working out, I can work out twice as long because I have twice as much oxygen going through. So I've lost uh, over 35 pounds, 16% yeah, muscle mass, and uh, just head in the right direction. And uh, I'll just keep doing it. Congratulations. What a, what a huge change in a few months. And I am going to get you some of the bulletproof bars that also don't have any sugar, but we'll fill you up. I swear it. Um, so that's it. And it literally, I just fooled, I call it the fool's diet because I fooled myself as an engineer. So everything I used to have and snack on late at night is now replaced with other stuff. And I'm still snacking late at night, but all that other stuff is one gram of sugar. Got it. Um, and I didn't, I, I figured out a way to practically fit it in my life. Because if I had to get up at 7 a.m., go to the gym and work out yeah. and move my schedule and move my calls, it wouldn't last a week. I, I think for most computer programmers, waking up at 7 a.m. or 5 a.m. isn't in their DNA. I think there's a disproportionate number of people who have the circadian timing that shifted late uh, in, in that world. I don't think it's, I don't think it's because they're developers. I think that that's part of what makes them developers. 
Uh, in other words, it's not the lifestyle of being a coder. It, it's that uh, 15% of us just tend to be night owls and 15% of us are the morning people. So I, I've rarely seen engineers who, who like their life when they become super morning people, unless they've always been that way. And there are some, but. Plus, if you're up at one, two in the morning, everyone's asleep. There's nothing on TV. Nobody's calling you. You can get a good three to four hours of work done in silence. That's when I do all my writing. I was up till three last night working on my book. And, and that said, you know, I controlled my light exposure. I, I don't eat after it gets dark usually. And so like I tweak all the environmental variables so that I, I can still function the next morning. So you asked about the TV show. Yeah, yeah so let's get to that. So but anyway, your, your story is fascinating. So, so how you're managing stuff is awesome. All right. So now you've got your company. And you, you've built out this unusual model uh, where you have these incredibly gifted super nannies uh, managing uh, evil geniuses, some, some more evil than others, obviously, right? And then uh, how do you turn that into a TV show? What's the story? So we were getting so many requests and we were running out of geniuses and they're hard to find. So I went to my geniuses and said, now I have a funded problem. How do I find more geniuses? And they analyzed the problem as engineers do. And they came back to me and said, if you write a book, the millennials probably won't read it. If you make a movie, they'll forget your name in six months. But if you replace CSI as the number one show on the air for the next 10 years, the geniuses will come find you. And the 12-year-olds out there will grow up wanting to be scientists instead of wanting to be Kim Kardashian. And that has to be good for the country. So I said, great, how do you make a TV show? I'd never done anything in Hollywood. So being geeks, we picked our favorite movies. So we got the producers of Transformers, Spider-Man, and Star Trek, the director of <laughs> Fast and the Furious, the writers of Sopranos, Prison Break, and Hostages, Got them all together in a room, and uh, that was four years ago. And the show has been number one and number two now in 188 countries around the globe, but up to a billion viewers a week. Incredible. And we're still on every Monday night on CBS. So now with the show, do you have your squad of geniuses work on statistics for the show? Do you have them work on plot lines? I mean, you have a group of writers, but I'm not sure if they're all 150 IQ, so I don't know if that counts. Well, thank God they're not, because... <laughs> the show was a great example of what we're talking about. If I made the show mm -hmm. and made it technically correct and accurate, it would be a documentary on Discovery Channel that nobody watched. Yep. By letting go and letting the writers have fun with it and letting Hollywood put in some car chases and some romance, 70% of my true message gets out to a billion people instead of 100% of my message getting out to nobody. So what, what's the true message you want people to take away when they see it? There's a few. Number one, and a lot of it is coming from the background we spoke about. Number one is explaining that people with low EQ, it's a disability like any other, and to have some empathy for those people rather than bullying them because they don't play football. <laughs> Trying to create a bit of a culture that we should celebrate intelligence instead of celebrating sports, for example. That there's a place for everyone who never fit in. If you, if you make that place for them. So my company is like an orphanage for smart people or a home for the mentally enabled. <laughs> okay. Um, the show shows that there's a solution to every problem if you think outside the box enough. So I believe those are all good messages to put out to 26 million people a week in the U.S. That's, uh, that's pretty incredible. I, I love that message. Now, you've, you mentioned you have a degree in artificial intelligence. Yes. Um, like what kind of like like I have a, a degree in uh, computer information systems and my uh, my minor or specialty was in decision support systems because they wouldn't allow us to call it artificial intelligence because the promise of AI had been made and broken so many times in the history of computer science. Like, please don't ever say those words like those are banned from the campus. But it was essentially it, it was AI. 
And so you actually studied AI. Um, where did you do that? Sussex University. Sussex, okay, because that's a really that's a good school. Okay, so they had, they were they were courageous enough to actually talk about it. Whereas where I was, at, you know, uh, I went to this place because Gallo gave a million dollars a year for the computer <laughs> systems. Yeah, Sussex is like the number four spot in Europe. Yeah, that, that's a that's a big school. Okay, so so they had the the balls to say AI early in the game, and um, what do you think is happening now? Like we're on the cusp of. Artificial intelligence disrupting a lot of jobs. Yeah, there's a place for everyone in a world that's coming like in the next three years. Is there really a place for everyone when we've got these really smart computers? Like just you're a smart guy. What do you think about that? You're right. I mean, we're on the cusp of a very interesting turbulence that'll come up that I think won't turn around in three to five years. I think it'll, it could be a good 15 to 20 year run where we could hit 47% unemployment. Self-driving cars put a, put 1.6 million truck drivers out of business, 160,000 Uber drivers, and then a lot of uh, blue-collar workers are out of are put out of place because the robotic arms from Japan that can do the same job are now cheaper than minimum wage and work three shifts of production with no smoke breaks and no union. So that'll happen quickly. The appropriate solution to it would be, of course, robot wages, robot taxes, and universal basic wage. So everyone gets 25 grand a year for being a citizen from the government instead of paying the government taxes. And the robots make everything four times cheaper. So it's the equivalent of 100 grand a year salary. If we had smart enough leadership, that's what we should be moving towards. Gates says it. I say it. Musk says it. Nobody's listening. Or everyone could be greedy and stick their heads in the ground and do a power grab. And we end up with half the people unemployed and can't feed their kids. And we end up with riots in the streets and bloody war. That seems kind of ugly and not impossible. And <laughs> in you know, a weekend. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you that there's nothing worse than hordes of hungry people for making everyone's life suck. So it, it's our job as entrepreneurs to do that. Can you use your show to get that message out? Unfortunately, I mean, whether it's that show or even this show, only about 1% of the people listening will really register it and call us and go, you know, I either want to help or I need your help. The other 99% will tune out and go, well, that was entertaining. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping the audience for Bulletproof Radio is higher than 1% uh, well, who, who we'll, pay we'll, attention we'll to We'll find out. Prove me wrong, please. Go to Concierge <laughs> Up and type in your three wishes. It's like, it's like mini Santa Claus. What are the three wishes in your life you want to fix? Well, I think it's three funded wishes. Correct. I, I, I should issue. clarify that. It, funded wishes, you have to have a minimum of 10 grand to put towards it uh, just as a deposit so we can chat and sure. figure it out. But... Um, we believe we can fix any problem, and but the, the trouble is that the majority of people are in a democracy. You can be right or you can be popular, and we yeah. vote in the person who's popular. Uh, we we certainly have a track record of doing that. Well, all right, let, let's say that I'm uh, microplastics in the ocean. It, it kind of pisses me off. So if I was willing to write a a ten thousand dollar check to concierge up, and I go, you know, remove microplastics from the ocean. So, like, all right, here's ten grand. What are you going to do? Like, how would you approach solving a big problem like that with the structure of concierge up? Will you have it? So, for a lot of problems, you'd bring me. I, I could rattle off a solution right away and take you through it. I haven't studied microplastics, so the first thing I would do is bring in the water boy, which is the guy who built twelve of the desalinization plants for Dubai. Okay. Also bring in our graphene and filtering expert who knows how to graph, how to filter stuff at a nanotech level. Um, then we'd have to work on overall what is the budget that you have beyond the 10 grand, because 10 grand ain't going to cut it. And then do we use, let's say the budget you have is a million bucks. Do we use some of that 
to create a, a campaign, an awareness, a fundraiser, a register as a nonprofit, so that there's a functional arm of people raising more money that you know you're going to need. So use your money to go get money. So we don't run dry immediately and the whole thing dies on the vine. Right. And then I would start, we luckily now because of who we are and being a household name with the show, there's almost no professor or university we can't call or reach out to who doesn't call us back the next day or two and we get to have a chat. So start finding the experts on this and pulling them together. And one of the things we found over and over again, whether it's medical, doctor, professors, they're paid to research and ponder. Engineers are paid to deliver every Friday. We mm -hmm. got a ship. So when you put engineers in charge of researchers and then you bug them by going, are you done yet? Are you done yet? What's holding you up? Why can't you speed up FDA approval? What's, what's, what's the delay here? How can we get around this? Talk to my lawyer. Let's get a lobbyist. Can we do an injunction? Can we speed this up? Is your competitor slowing you down? Suddenly you get things moving because a researcher is paid to research forever. Whether yep. it's cancer, ALS, MS, you name it. They're not paid to solve it. And the day they solve it, they're out of business. And they usually don't own the IP of it anyway when they do solve it. So it's no skin off their nose. No benefit to them. So the motivations are all wrong. And if there are seven kinds of cures for breast cancer, for example, but nobody's writing grants against them, guess what? The doctors and the researchers will keep researching the same stuff over and over again because people have grants for that, that particular kind of cancer. Um, I think what you're illustrating there is like at a certain point, like, well, I've got to solve a problem now and I don't have all the research. In fact, we, we never will have all the research because the point of research is to keep discovering. But given what we know, you got to have an applicable solution. Right. So, I mean, if it's your daughter who has diabetes or something else, then you've got a timeline and a deadline. So now you're motivated to say, OK, what can I do for her? Especially if you can test whether it worked three months from now, like did my insulin sensitivity change? If so, right. do more of that. Like, like it's not the end of the world, but sitting around and doing what you did to get there seems dumb, especially if you're doing it to wait for 16 clinical trials. and things. To me, it's like NASA. When NASA went to land on the moon, it took them $8 billion and X number of years. When SpaceX wanted to do it, it was less than $100 million and it was 18 months. Yeah. So, you know, if you've got to deliver and you're looking at it from a commercial deadline point of view... You can do things much, much faster. Right. But so what you're describing is, is certainly something that I've, I've fantasized about as an engineer who reads you know, science fiction. Uh, <laughs> it's like, okay, what if we had this technocracy where you know, the engineers are in charge? But I think about that, but then I go back to Silicon Valley, you know, Fairchild Semiconductor, you know, one of the first big chip companies out there. They have like 16 toxic plumes in the groundwater under Silicon Valley where they like completely, even to this day, you don't want to live in those apartment complexes because like you're going to get cancer, right? And engineers in the context of solving a problem now and quickly, oftentimes, especially if they're low EQ, haven't considered societal effects, environmental effects, whole system effects. Right. If we put engineers in charge of everything like this, like what does that world look like in, in your vision? I, I honestly think it would be a better world because it, the you'd have less nepotism, less politics, less. I've never seen a bunch of scientists go to war and try and kill each other. I don't know. Right? You, 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 ever seen, you ever put a bunch of scientists in a room with scientists who don't like vaccines? <laughs> the, yes. <laughs> There's a few areas where they seem to want to kill each other. They will argue. <laughs> but... It's, it's blind faith and emotion that cause wars. Yep. Ra where you have people you cannot rationalize with and there's no way to prove something right or wrong and you can't agree to A-B test it. Then the only thing left is let's chop each other's heads off. 
those are the people we vote into power because they're the ones who have enough EQ to play golf with the right people all day while the others are off in the lab actually doing work. The question, though, is, is that if you think of, of this idea, okay, if engineers rule the world, they wouldn't play these power politics games, but you also have these engineers who are hacking super nanny systems that like engineers do get pissed off and, and get vindictive. I mean, just tell them that they're, that tell them their code isn't clean and watch what happens. Right. So it, it seems like we're all, no one's immune from these. I didn't these human say things. they were perfect, okay. <laughs> but if you do use the 80, 20 rule, 80% of their time might be used for something the, more productive the, than the other way around right now. That, that's a fair point. Now here's the other thing. You sent me a couple uh, press releases just the last couple of days where you've uh, worked with some of your engineers and you've built some basically drone swarming systems for combat, right? So you're also like, well, well, none of us wants war. You're also still supporting this. How do you work that all out within your moral compass? Absolutely. So that my company doesn't do anything illegal or bad for the planet. Okay. So when people come to us every week with stuff they want to do that's shady and we turn it down. What's the worst shady request you've had? Well, one of the funniest ones was this guy came to us and he said, he has a website that he wants us to SEO the hell out of. So get it to the top of Google, get 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 all the right AdWords around it, promote it up there, make it appear all, all, for all these different searches. We're like, sure, yeah, we can do that. And then we said, what's the site? And it was an entire site he built proving in, that his neighbor is Satan. <laughs> <laughs> and my response was, okay, I don't think that's going to make the world a better place. So we, we turned that down. And, you know, there, there's... But what was his neighbor Satan? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, you're asking about the, the drone stuff. So, yeah, the Army... This is the difference with this press release. The Army press office authorized this release, which they rarely do, to to confirm that we're the ones who won the, uh, the, uh, were awarded the contract to put artificial intelligence in the MQ-1C. So the MQ-1 is the Predator drone. And the MQ-1C is the Gray Eagle, which is the Army's version of the Predator. It's the same thing. Uh, but in a different division, and Hunter and a bunch of the other drones that they use. And what they're trying to do is unify the ground control systems so that many drones can fly off the same control system. And instead of having one drone, one pilot, you can also now have one pilot, multiple drones. And then you need to have them fly in swarms so they don't run into each other and they can act intelligent ways even when humans can't communicate with them. And then you've got to test all that stuff. And that's one of the strength areas in our company. We have artificial intelligence software that'll test for all possibilities. Kind of like two chess computers playing each other. Think of everything that could happen. Now, on the moral compass side, peace means one guy has the biggest stick, in my view. Okay. We've had a relative peace, meaning not a World War III, for over 40 years because one person held the biggest stick. Now, the U.S. isn't perfect by a long shot. But most people in most parts of the world would prefer the U.S. to be in charge than some dictatorship. Um, that's a fair point. No one likes dictatorship. Everyone anyway. would prefer nobody to be in charge, yeah. but that lasts about a week till somebody be, becomes in charge again. So the other thing is these sticks need to be really accurate. 2,600 people were killed in the Gulf War by stray missiles because the targeting systems weren't accurate enough. The last system probably I more, built... Probably more than that. <laughs> 2,600 civilians in the reports. Right, right. The last system I built is 99.98% accurate. For means, missile control. Which means two out of 1,000 go astray. Okay. So if I don't do it, they'll use the old system. So now am I supporting war or am I trying to save lives? 
if the presupposition there is that you know, in order for there to be peace, one person have to have, has to have the biggest stick, that's definitely a position with some equilibrium there. However, I kind of like this idea of building a world where none of us feels like we really need to have a big stick to whack each other. Right, but in the history of mankind, the majority of humans have never agreed to do the right thing for the right reasons, ever. That's, Greed and power takes over every single time. Well, that's, but if you talk about the history of mankind, we've never put people on Mars, but I just heard a talk from people who were saying six years. I actually don't believe that. I think it's going to take longer because the astronauts will die on the way because we haven't solved some environmental right. things. But maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, the history, whatever. Like, aren't you about doing things that have never been done in history before? Absolutely. But converting the majority of humans' behavior is something we don't have the budget for. I'd write a $10,000 check for that one. <laughs> <laughs> there is some hacking of human nature to be done and uh yeah that that takes a lot of a lot of education a lot of resources and just a different way of thinking I'm with you there a whole different level of sophistication yeah it uh it also takes time you know if you're hungry all the time you're not gonna think about thinking you think about eating and so there's there's some big problems to be solved in the world for sure i tested out concierge job uh, when i was working on headstrong uh, my uh, my book that did end up hitting the New York Times bestseller list. So I worked with a super nanny named Lisa, and she did a, a really good job of just compiling all the data that my team at Bulletproof didn't have. So we looked at other patterns and things like that. So I got uh, like a, a lot of information that was that was useful and actionable. And Lisa even you know, made some introductions I wouldn't have expected uh, to different avenues for distributing books and getting some more exposure for it. So it was definitely a, a cool experience and it was going outside of the team that already have a bulletproof. And so it, it's, it's an interesting idea to say, you know, here's a, a poorly structured problem without an algorithm to solve it. Can you guys figure out an algorithm to solve it? Can you find the data that needs to, to be solved? Can you put together a plan? Uh, so it, it was a, it was a really valuable experience. So yeah, we our customer. You put it well because our customers. We try to encourage them to bring us a fuzzy problem. We call it where you're not. Most people are used to outsourcing after they've figured everything out. They let's say building an app. Traditionally, they have the requirements. They build out their screenshots. They know exactly what they want to do, mm -hmm. and they hire some company in India and they tell them every inch of the way what to do. With us, we're encouraging customers to come to us earlier than that, saying, "I kind of sort of want to do something in this area." I don't know if it's a dumb idea or not. Can you pull up some data, see if this holds any weight? Does this make sense? Does this cost a million dollars or is it actually cheaper? Is there stuff out there we can already reuse or piggyback off of? And then we pull it all together. I remember we had one client whose wife wanted to start a blow bar, which is like hair dry. It's like a hairdresser's, but you don't okay. cut the hair. Right. So very quickly with analytics, we found which mall is has no blow bar and is furthest from all of the competitors right. that has a large number of women between 35 and 45 with disposable income. And then protect her by getting making sure she's not screwed over on her lease. And then everything from her insurance coverage to her QuickBooks to her swipe card to her American Express merchant accounts to everything she needed to put it together. And then the social media structure so she can hold a launch party and invite all the influencers who then went to a booth to set up to take their selfies that hard-coded the hashtag in there. Yep. Now, she knows hair. She doesn't know all the rest of this. Mm -hmm. She's not an expert on syncing swipe cards and merchant accounts with QuickBooks, but we are. I know we put the security cameras in, so if she does get sued, she can cover and explain herself. Stuff she would not have thought of. And that's a quick example of where people can come to a sort of fuzzy problem 
and then everything they're not an expert in, we try and compensate for. Cool. Walter, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what are the three most important things or three most important pieces of advice you have for me? What would you recommend? So I would actually go back to my balancing cues philosophy okay. on that person. And what I'd want to do is do a bunch of assessments of them, both physical assessments, a Myers-Briggs assessment, an EQ, an IQ test, et cetera, so I can get a baseline of what are they already good at that they don't need to worry about. Okay. And then what is their weakest spot? What is it? Maybe maybe they're brilliant, but their their relationships are in the toilet because they don't know how to maintain a good relationship. So trying to bring some balance initially is the first thing. Is it the, the studies, I think Malcolm Gladwell's outliers and others said some of the most successful people out there are not the highest IQ or not the best looking or not the highest EQ. It was the people who had the best balance of all of the above. Okay. They were smart enough. They were EQ enough, etc. So try to bring some balance to it. And then in terms of figuring out happiness, finding out their true self-actualization. You know, maybe they're running a factory because they inherited it from their father. Maybe that's not what they want to do. So what is it they want to do? Now, if you take their Myers-Briggs test for mapping their brain and then do situational matching on top of that, which is what situations are they, is their brain naturally fitted to, mm -hmm. what jobs, that can lead them to self-actualization. So it's interesting when people haven't considered this before and you sit, you sit down to dinner with someone and you go, I wrote you a $10 million check right now that you cannot spend a penny on yourself. But now you have real power to go wander the earth and relieve pain and suffering from any charity or any, any area you want to, who would you help? Who would you help if you don't need to help yourself? And if you believe that it's possible for you to build that building with your name on it, then that's your self-actualization destination. Now we just got to balance out your BMW to get there. And even if you're only halfway there, you'll wake up every morning fulfilled. Do you know All where right. you're going? And what's the third one? The ability to execute is key. Lots, lots, some people have money and some people have ideas, but very few have the discipline, education to execute. And if that's not your strength, if you're not an engineer and you're not used to knuckling down and being detail-oriented and executing, then hire someone who is and listen to them, half the time at least. So, so cultivate an ability to execute, or maybe you could just boil it down to just do it. <laughs> to quote a famous company. Just have somebody do it, because it might not be you. Yeah, I, I think that you've, you've, you hit on a, a really important point there. Well, Walter O'Brien, thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. And people can go to conciergeup.com to, uh, to check out what you're doing with Scorpion there. And of course, they can watch Scorpion the TV show wherever TV shows are broadcast. Is that how you, what, what station is it on? Well, it's, it's CBS. CBS, okay. Um, Amazon Prime has it, Walmart, Target, Best Buy, box sets are everywhere. So, okay. It, yeah. it's, a, it's a big it's show. It's easy to find. Know. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Great conversation. Fasting. It's one of the best biohacks because there are so many benefits to your body and it doesn't even cost anything. Fasting can help you live longer, increase your brain power, and even turn back your biological age because it induces something called autophagy. Autophagy swaps out old or damaged parts of your cells with fresh new ones. There's now an awesome product called Spermidine Life that actually tricks your body into thinking it's fasting, which triggers autophagy without any actual fasting required. Spermidine Life is extracted from non-GMO plants and it's super clean. Fast smarter, not harder. 
Add spermidine life to your stack today, whether or not you practice intermittent fasting. Go to spermidinelife.us, use code ASPRI25 for 25% off your first purchase. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.